Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 113. Well, hello, my beautiful friends. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. I hope all of you had a beautiful, restful and joyful holiday. I know that I did. I spent a lot of time with my younger sister, Anjali, and my niece, Zia, who were here in Chicago from New York, where they live. And we spent lots of time as a family with both my kids, Zane and Isha, along with my parents and my husband, Kanwar. And we just had a lot of time to connect and laugh and just be together. I also had some time to connect and just be at home with Kunwar. We did a lot of stuff around our house, cleared the clutter and the piles of paper sitting here, there and everywhere. And we also spent some time reflecting on 2023. You know, during the first few weeks of January, I always like to take some time to get quiet I limit my social calendar with only what really needs to be done. It's a time when I feel like I have some space and some time to move a little slower, to reflect on the year that has passed and to plan for the year that's coming. And I know that many of you may also be in this mode as we step into this new year of 2024. It's a time for some reflection, setting intentions and embracing new habits that nurture our well-being. And as we're all thinking about new habits and resolutions, many of you, like myself, might be looking to either recommit to some habits or practices or start some new ones for the first time. And so I thought that this week on the first episode of 2024, we could kick it off with a series that we debuted last year on the podcast called Go Deeper. A series that was inspired by all of you, our amazing community of listeners, asking for more Ayurveda and yoga knowledge, going deeper on a specific topic so that you can learn and understand more about these healing modalities. And I thought that it would be even more helpful for me to talk to other experts in Ayurveda for these episodes, other Ayurvedic practitioners, many of whom I consider my mentors and teachers as well. And so I thought, Let's kick off 2024 with a go deeper episode about building new habits, specifically yoga and yoga for women. And so today, Indu Aurora is back with me again. Indu has been on the podcast several times. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes on Marma Therapy and Rest, you definitely want to listen to those as they are some of the most popular episodes we've done. And they're linked in the show notes for you. They're jam-packed with so much knowledge and so many actionable tips. But before I get into the episode today, let me tell you more about my guest, Indu Aurora. For over 20 years, since 1999, Indu has been teaching yoga philosophy, yoga therapy, and Ayurveda, sharing her profound knowledge and experiences. Her journey in these ancient practices is deeply rooted in the traditional Guru Parampara system of India, where she studied intensively, deepening her understanding and her skills. Indu's approach to teaching is not just about giving knowledge, about sharing knowledge. It's about igniting a transformative spark within each of her students. Her teaching style is celebrated for its focus on empowerment and inspiration, encouraging every person to awaken the inner guru, the ultimate source of wisdom and healing. Indu is an international speaker and teacher and is also an acclaimed author with three insightful books to her name, including her latest work, Yoga, Ancient Heritage, Tomorrow's Vision. 
In these profound insights into yoga and Ayurveda have always been a favorite among our listeners. And today she's here to share her knowledge about yoga for women. In our conversation, we explore the unique aspects of yoga for women, emphasizing the need for personalized practices based on individual life stages and Ayurvedic principles. We also dive into the three stages of a woman's life, kapha, pitta, and vata and how yoga practices should be adapted for each. In addition, Indu highlights practices that support women during perimenopause and menopause. And we also discuss the significance of timing in yoga practices, aligning them with the body's circadian rhythm and natural cycles for optimal benefits. As I've said before, every time that I talk to Indu, I learned so much from her that broadens my perspective and deepens my understanding of Ayurveda and yoga. My conversations with Indu are so special to me because Indu was one of my first teachers and mentors when I started my three-year-long yoga therapy training, and she has helped me with some of the most difficult life challenges I've had. Since then, she's become a dear friend. I am so deeply honored to have Indu Aurora back on the podcast again to go deeper, to talk about yoga for women through their life stages. Well, hello, Indu. I am so happy to be back with you on the podcast again. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's wonderful to converse with you and through you to many. Oh, thank you so much. I love, I love, love, love these conversations with you because I learned so much from you. This is, I think, your third or fourth appearance on the podcast. And I have to tell you, your episodes are some of the most popular episodes that we do. Everyone just loves learning from you. So thank you so much for the gift of your time and your knowledge. We really, really appreciate it. And so today we are going to be talking about a really interesting topic, which is yoga for women. And this idea came up through some of the things that you've been writing about and posting about lately that I you know, I follow you on Instagram and I'm part of your community. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about is that, you know, at the beginning of the year in January, you know, everyone is thinking about new habits, new things that they want to adopt for themselves. And especially for a lot of the listeners of this podcast specifically, you know, yoga is many times a habit that they either want to, you know, recommit to a daily practice of yoga or, you know, create a new daily practice of yoga in some ways, you know. And, you know, while there are some things that a lot of people can do, general things, yoga really is not a one size fits all, especially for women, which we're going to dive into that topic. But from your perspective, you know, why is it that yoga is so personal and, and can't be a one size fits all sort of approach? That's a great question and a great conversation point, Avanti. The first thing that comes to my mind as I listen to you is the voice of my teacher. And I remember my teacher saying that the same word, the meaning of the same word changes with time. So no matter what was or what will be our entry point into yoga, I really hope and wish it changes for you. And when I say you, I mean the listener, that I really hope it changes for you. I really hope you keep an open mind to those possibilities because we change with time. Our bodies change with time. Our attitudes change with time. And when we go through those changes, of course, the practices should also change so that they don't just meet where we are. They uplift us from that place. And uh, going back to the point that you mentioned, one size fits all. And that reminds me of one of my another teacher who used to say and still says that, that, you know, that each one of us has a different physical, mental, emotional, pranic, spiritual, karmic capacity. And because each one of us is at a different space and a different pace at which we are spinning in this time and space, it is really important to understand that what may be working for someone else Maybe it can work as an inspiration for us, but may not necessarily work absolutely as it worked for the other person. So, and even if we keep the goal of yoga in mind, we have to understand that through the lens of yoga, this philosophy that came from through the Sanatan Dharma through India, it's important to understand that 
that philosophy believes in the in the process of karma in the message of karma in the understanding of karma and since each one of us are at a different karmic space the goal of yoga that is yoga which means moving beyond this spinning of the karmic wheel we have to understand where we are so that the practices can be applied accordingly so it is not i do not know if i would say one size fits all i would say that one practice does not fit all in this case the practice when we start seeing the practice through the lens that oh this practice this benefit that is when we are misunderstanding it it's not the practice alone that is beneficial it is the practice that is the content and the person that is the context the context has to be the content has to be seen through the lens of context otherwise we are missing the point and here the context is always the person the individual yeah wow that's a really beautiful way of saying it that the content has to be seen through the context of the person so the content is the actual yoga practice whatever parts of the yoga practice whether it's asana or mantra or jesh any any of the tools that you might use that of yoga but you have to look at it through the lens of the context of that specific person which is why it's not one size fits all even though there can be a general structure to a practice that all of us can follow whether it's you know adding a component of movement of asana and then maybe meditation or breath work etc it has to be personalized to the specific person the context of that person absolutely i mean we can take this through an example like you mentioned pranayama that in yoga there are so many different pathways to come to that same eventual goal that is the state of yoga and that pathway could be asana pranayama mantra mudra and so on and so forth so we can say that pranayama is beneficial for everyone but that is a very abstract statement which pranayama which pranayama how much of it at what time of the day and at what stage of your life okay let's say and we we can understand that okay this pranayama let's say the humming bee pranayama bhramri pranayama generally considered to be a very calming pranayama so we would say that oh anyone who is stressed or can can start practicing this pranayama and this would be good for them the content that is yoga has to be seen in the light of the context that is ayurveda ayurveda gives the lens to yoga so when we understand that the individual the stress could be vata stress pitta stress kapha stress if someone is having vata stress and that is because of too much sound stimulus for them bhramri would not work because that is too sound that we are pacifying the nervous system and here with sound you are further stimulating the sound element and the vata dosha so this is just to give you an idea that it matters to dig through to peel the layers to understand i think being that level of yoga nerd helps <laughs> so <laughs> i think a little bit of nerdiness is required yeah absolutely absolutely and, you know this is not to make people who are listening be stressed about what pieces they're you know specifically using it's not that something is going to necessarily be bad for you but there can always be something that is better suited for you and that comes from sort of this deeper look into yoga and ayurveda the context the content and why you're doing what you're doing and so that's actually something that you know let's let's dive in a little bit specifically when it comes to yoga for women and so you know why should yoga be tailored for women and their needs and the reason i want to ask this question in the context of me being south asian growing up in a south asian household and there for women there are all these rules and taboos sort of that were that were created and now you know i don't know sometimes if some of them you know they had the reasons for why they were practiced a certain way and then it got sort of twisted into these rules that made no sense to us and were sort of imposed upon us for the wrong reasons but i think it's really important to take that into context because you know when i was growing up there were all these sort of suggestions i'll say <laughs> 
of when you should do certain things as a woman during your menstruation, not during your menstruation, at a time of the month, not a time of the month, during a time of your life, you know, all these things. And it always was explained in ways that I found to be very restrictive rather than supportive, right? And I think what was so interesting to me when I was sort of reading some of the things that you've been writing about yoga for women is this perspective you had that it should be an opportunity, that the changes in a woman's body, either monthly or through the span of their life, you know, the different periods of their life should be seen as an opportunity. And so let's dive in a little there somewhere. I know I've kind of gone all over the place here, but I really think that it's important for so many reasons, but also this added lens of being South Asian and sort of the things that are imposed upon us. I hear you, what you're saying, that when you grow up in South Asian family household, there are these suggestions, which could be sometimes rules, which could be sometimes regulations, which may sometimes feel so constraining. However, when these, a part of me also feels very thankful that I was introduced to this knowledge so casually, so effortlessly on everyday basis that give the example of during the menstruation cycle. I remember during the menstruation cycle, my mother would suggest that we used to live in joint family, my mother, grandmother, you know, there's all this feminine influence. And there would be that suggestion that, okay, avoid eating yogurt during or curd during this during the menstruation cycle and avoid eating pickle and now for a young girl it's like why should i avoid eating why should i i feel that when the knowledge is passed with reasoning it does not become constraining when the knowledge is passed on as do's and don'ts that is when it becomes imposition it becomes constraint it becomes hierarchical even sometimes so That is my hope, that is my wish, that through this episode, I hope the listeners find empowerment, not fear, not fear-based education, learning that that makes sense, that is is based on reasoning and is reasonable, that inspires you and empowers you. So why yoga for women? You know, coming back to what you mentioned, you know, according to Ayurveda, our bodies are like playground of five elements, earth, water, fire air, ether. And these five natural elements and forces create these triad, which is called vata, pitta, and kapha. And throughout our life and throughout the day and throughout the mensuration, through each of these stages and states, these five elements play a role. And when we understand the language of these five elements, we can transform these elements into power, into shakti. But when we do not know how to harness We don't know how to harness because we don't understand. We don't understand because sometimes we don't even know. But when we know, we can utilize the practices to strengthen sometimes our physical body and sometimes our subtle body and other times our causal body. Because in Ayurveda as well as yoga, the body is not just seen as physical component. The body is seen as these three components, the physicality of the body, that which you can see, hold, the physical tissues, the organs, this body. And the subtle body is the animator of the physical body. That is the body of prana. That is quietly orchestrating everything, whether it's the beating of your heart, whether it's the movement of in the gut, whether it's the movement of your arms, the speech, eyes, everything is quietly orchestrated by the subtle body. And then comes the causal body, which orchestrates your mind through the karma to create kind of a drawing, a pull to learn about something, to create even sometimes aversion towards some things and the higher knowledge that allows us to see all of this. So I think it's a very unique point of view. The body through the human lifespan can be divided into these three stages, vata stage, pitta stage, and kapha stage, where the young age is considered to be the kapha stage, the building stage, and the middle age is considered to be the pitta stage, which is the stage when a woman's body experiences the menstruation cycle. And then the vata stage when the woman's body goes through menopause. So you can think of it at the end of the kapha stage comes the menarche, 
the beginning, the first cycle. Then during the Pitta cycle is the menstruation stage. And at the end of the Pitta stage comes the perimenopause and finally the menopause. When we understand this arc, we are able to pick practices that really support our physical bodily systems, our tissues, our mind, even our emotional states. So I think the practices become more powerful, more empowering when we understand this, that during menstruation cycle, the same practices that you were doing prior to the menstruation cycle or after the menstruation cycle may not work because now your body is going through a completely different play of rhythm, a completely different conversation among these five elements. Yeah, you know, I think I think one point that you made is so important, which is when you understand the why, it's not restrictive. When it's not just imposed upon you and said, do this, do this, do this, without an explanation, right? That's when it becomes restrictive. And I will say that, you know, much of my experience growing up in this country with my parents not always explaining things to me in a way that was logical, made sense to me, that was more than just, this is just the way we do it, right? That was always the answer when there was no other answer that could be given. That felt restrictive. And I think also being a young woman growing up in another culture it did feel restrictive because it was sort of like, well, why do we have to do it this way? I'm living here, you know, all of those kinds of things. But I do think your your point of understanding the why, and that's what I'm hoping will happen through this conversation, is understanding the why of why you should try to really change the practices in your yoga practice as you go through the different stages of life as a woman specifically is what we're talking about in this episode. So I think that that's a really, really important point that you made. So maybe we should just jump in and start talking about that. And so, you know, how would you say in general, and you kind of gave a little bit about this already, is how do the changes in a woman's body affect her yoga practice? So maybe we could start with, you know, the kapha stage when, when, when women are young girls, and then we can move into menstruation during the pitta stage and then the vata stage of perimenopause and menopause. Maybe we could just go through sort of some of the general things we need to think about. Absolutely. There is just one more point I would like to say or share is um, there are several sources to learn from. Sometimes, you know, we think that, oh, my parents did not tell me this. They did not give me the reason. Because we think of them as a singular source from where the knowledge can come. I remember growing up, I was a very curious child. I think most of the children are curious. I think I had some extra curiosity. I would not listen and the reason, reason was given to me. So if I would not get the reason from my mother, I would go to my father or my grandmother or my aunt. I would just keep digging. And I feel that is important because one book, one teacher, one person cannot give all possible answers. And because they are not able to give, because, you know, there are even in yoga, it says there are three valid sources of learning. One is anumana, which means assumption, you know, inference. When you come to a deduction, when you infer something like there is a smoke, so there must be fire somewhere. A very classic example. Then the second is pratyaksha, your own personal experience that, you know, if you have this experience, for example, you're listening something in this episode and you are listening to it because, let's say, you have developed a certain liking for healing, for healthy healing podcast and and you trust that, but you apply that. For example, I'm suggesting that, oh, Brahmri Pranayam may aggravate the Vata Dosha, but that may not be the case for you. So that is where your Pratyaksha is very powerful because your experience itself is telling you a story. And the third is Apta. And Apta may be learning through the books, learning through text, learning through a teacher, or sometimes the voice of parents, where you may not get a reason but, but because we trust, we listen. Now, I also understand that it could be limiting sometimes to just listen, but keep the mind open that there are several sources of learning. And we must just keep learning. If one source doesn't work, go to the other source. Uh, coming back to the three stages and how the practice can change. The initial stage, that is the kapha stage. At this stage, 
we need more movement because the quality of kapha is stagnation. The quality of kapha is growth, but it could also mean accumulation. So this is the stage where yoga, that, that limb of yoga that is asana can be really beneficial. Surya Namaskara or asanas which are stretch based like forward fold, back bend, twist, all these asanas that give five movements around the spine. I would say that keep this simple rule in mind. There's five movements around the spine, the stretch, contraction, twist, forward fold and back bend as a group, inversion. These are the five movements that you can give around the spine. So if we combine forward fold and back bend as one group, contraction and stretch as other group, twist as the third one, inversion as the fourth one, and lateral stretch, the side stretch as the fifth one. These are five basic movements which allow proper circulation around all internal organs. So this is important to understand that yoga is always about, even the physical part of yoga is always about work in. You're working inside out. So at this kapha stage, among the, all the limbs of yoga, focus on the asana part. That would be really beneficial. When we move towards the pitta stage, that is the stage during which a woman's body goes through menstruation cycle every month. At that stage, your practice before menstruation cycle, during menstruation cycle, and after menstruation cycle changes. The menstruation cycle itself is considered vata stage. After the menstruation cycle, the 10 days are considered kapha stage in a woman's body. Even though your constitution could be vata, pitta, kapha, during that one month time period, those five to seven days or three to five days are considered to be the Pittas, vata stage, then comes the kapha stage, and then comes the pitta stage. So your practice changes according to the qualities of these doshas. So during the menstruation cycle, any asana that interferes with the vata dosha, that interferes the vata dosha during menstruation cycle is primarily controlled by apana. And apana is that animating energy that animates the digest, the eliminating organs and the generative organs. These two group of organs are operated by apana, vata, apana dosha. And the purpose of apana is downward and outward. It helps move things downward and outward. It's a kind of pratyahara. It's sorry. It's a kind of release. It's a kind of letting go. So in that time period, if you're doing practices like pranayama with kumbha, holding on, we are working against the intelligence of the body. Or if we are doing asanas, which are too much movement based, we are also interfering with the vata dosha. Or let's say we are practicing inversion. Now, inversion is inward and upward. What is the primary quality of apana? Downward and outward. So, inversions must be avoided. Not because, oh, why should I not do? I can do everything. Of course, we can do everything. But when we learn how it may interfere and therefore may harm the body, then once we know better, we do better. That the purpose of these practices is not to build do's and don'ts. It's to support our progress, karmic progress. It's to support our spiritual progress through this physical body, through this mind. So practices, asanas, which are inversions, asanas, which are on the abdomen, pressure on the abdomen, twists, or laying down on the abdomen asanas, or asanas, which put too much pressure, like boat pose. When you lift your legs up, so much tension builds up in the abdominal organs, in the abdominal region. That should be avoided. But that does not mean things only have to be avoided. There are things that you must and can do and benefit from. All these subtle practices, which is actually, asanas is the tip of the iceberg that is yoga. All the other practices, the subtle practices are actually the real yoga. And this is a time period, such a unique time period, where women's body is it's almost like inside out, we, are, we can absolutely be in touch with our subtle body through mantra, through mudra, through shavasana, through meditation, through yoga nidra. So, so many possibilities open up. So many opportunities open up for us. So, it is a perfect time to do simple one is to one breathing or one is to two breathing or two is to one breathing. And if you find it a little boring, you can incorporate it with your anuloma viloma, with your nari shodhan. This is, this is a way to support the body in the letting go process, in the cleansing process, in the renewal process. And when we talk about 
the vata stage of life. In the vata stage of life, which is characterized by roughness, dryness, stiffness, sometimes even thinning and drying of the skin, sometimes it may be accompanied by constipation, sometimes it may be accompanied by state of mind, forgetfulness, lack of focus. At that time, all those practices, starting from the physical body, instead of focusing on the muscles and the internal organs as such, this is a really good time to focus on the bone tissue, on the nervous system tissue, because these are the two tissues which primarily are governed by vata dosha. So joint movement exercises, joint rotation exercises, apana kriyas, these are really beneficial. So I think we have to really understand this arc Kapha, mostly physical-based practices will be beneficial. Pitta, subtle body practices will be beneficial. And Vata, the causal body practices, more meditation, more yoga nidra. These practices will help in pacifying the Vata dosha. Not just pacifying the Vata dosha, but bringing clarity to the mind, discernment, so that we can move using the practices of yoga, we can move towards the goal of yoga, that is yoga. Mm -hmm. Wow. that's. Beautiful and and actually very, it's it's complicated, but it's also so simple in a way that you've described it because it gives you some things to focus on. You know, asana in the beginning in the first stage of life during childhood, the kapha time, and then moving to more of the subtle body practices during your pitta time, during that middle time of life when you're so busy with so many things, right? And then during the vata, perimenopause, menopausal time to go with the causal practices. So things that are more causal practices. Okay, so let's dive in. And I know you've given some examples, but maybe we could dive in a little bit more because I know the next question everybody's thinking is, okay, well, what exactly do you mean by that? You know, what do I do during, you know, for the more physical parts of yoga, of, of a yoga practice? And what do I do for the more subtle and the more causal? So maybe we could give a few examples of something physical, of movement, maybe something related to diet, you know, the Ayurvedic principles that we pull in, things that you think might be really helpful and things that are a little bit simpler for people to sort of put their arms around because I know that another thing that comes up many times is that it can be very intimidating. First of all, when you're trying to create new habits or add something as a new habit or try something new, especially at the beginning of the year, we're all, you know, really revved up to do this. And so having, you know, like a quick win of something like, okay, I can put my hands around this and really master this by practicing it every day right? That would be really great too. So I've given you lots of suggestions and ideas, but should we start with the kapha time of life for women? Absolutely. So there are certain group of practices which are called shatkriyas, cleansing practices. Among them, there are practices like kapalabhati, which is specifically for kapha pacifying, kapha pacification. Now, this is not just in the kapha stage of life. Anytime when you're feeling dull, heavy, when you feel that sense of congestion, procrastination, lack of motivation, which is all kapha, kapal bhati is such a wonderful practice to move that stagnation upward and outward. And I would say that that would be such a great practice during, during the kapha stage or whenever you're feel, feeling kapha-fied. I know that's not a word, but you know, whenever you feel that there is kapha accumulation, the Practice of Kapal Bhati can be a really good practice to adopt on a regular basis, on an everyday basis. Give it about two to five minutes. Pause whenever you feel the need to pause and continue the practice. Among the asanas, if you have to pick one thing, I would say pick Surya Namaskara. And do Surya Namaskara, whichever, there are so many variations and forms of Surya Namaskara. You do the one that speaks to you the most. But whichever you do, I think most of them don't have twist. Add one twist to it. Because they have all the other movements. Surya Namaskara has forward fold, back bend, contraction, stretch. It has inversion. But what it has, it does not has is twist. It does not has lateral stretch. So add two asanas. Pick any two asanas. And that would be, let's say you added two to five minutes of Kapalabhati. You add five to ten minutes of Surya Namaskara. You add another five minutes of the uh, twist and the lateral stretch. And then it's not that... In Kapha stage, you don't practice subtle practices at all. 
It's just that you're zooming in on the physical because that is what will be the most beneficial. So pay more attention to chat kriyas, pay more attention to asanas, and then comes the pranayama. Among the pranayama, the pranayama that is most known for kapha pacification is either bhastrika or ujjayi. So I know if these terms are new, search them out, look for it. But that will be a really good practice to open up the lungs, to clear the lungs, to clear the mucosal congestion. But let's say if that is too much, then simply stick to anuloma viloma. And in aluma, anuloma viloma for kapha pacification, focus on longer inhalation and shorter exhalation. Just keep that in mind. Two is to one. So that will become your kapha practice for whether in the kapha stage, that is, uh, that is after the menstruation cycle or kapha stage that is a childhood or if you're feeling kapha at any time. So that would be really beneficial for women to practice. Now let's come to the pitta stage. In the pitta stage, the zoom and the focus is on the subtle practice, but that does not mean you don't do the physical practices. In fact, you do to maintain the internal rhythm. And at this time, among the cleansing practices, what would be really beneficial is nauli. It's a practice which is called the uh, abdominal churning. And in this practice, you move the abdominal region in any way possible. One thing I suggest is to avoid looking at a YouTube video or a video, forget about YouTube, just video. Because sometimes what happens is as much as it gives you information, at times it also creates fear. Oh my God, my body doesn't look like that. Or my body doesn't move like that. It doesn't have to move like what other person's body is moving. What is important is in Nauli, you're creating communication between the generative organs, excretory organs, and digestive system organs. And these three organ systems are directly connected to Pitta Dosha. So what you're doing is building a healthy rhythm, a communication in these three digestive system organs. So among the cleansing practices, focus on Nauli, learning about Nauli, practicing Nauli. And among the asanas, the asanas that will be really beneficial at this time, at this stage of life will be the practices that you do focusing on the internal organs. See, in Surya Namaskar, the focus is more on arms and legs. Versus in, in the Pitta stage, what would be beneficial is if you focus on asanas, which are on internal organs. For example, let's focus on the thyroid. So the shoulder stand, for some of us who may not be able to do shoulder stand, there is a practice called fish pose, or there is a practice called plow pose, halasana, or if none of that has been working, then lion's gesture, where you stick the tongue out and create the roaring sound. That directly speaks to the hormones, directly speaks to the thyroid. So focus on asanas that work directly on internal organs, instead of the asanas that work more on arms and legs. So keep that in mind and let the larger part of your practice be pranayama. And in this time, if you are choosing pranayama, reverse the ratio. Instead of two is to one, which was for kapha, make it one is to two. When you have longer exhalation, there is more pitta pacification. There is more vata pacification. The longer exhalation creates a parasympathetic nervous system response. So focus on pranayama, which have longer exhalation. Whether it is brahmari, where you're focusing on the sound, or you even recite om with the focus on humming part. Or you do anuloma viloma with longer exhalation. Mantra practice. You There are mantras that are so powerful. There is one that is coming to my mind, which is especially beneficial or could be especially beneficial for women during the pitta stage. Uh, that is during the menstruation cycle the, and also during the pitta stage of life or any time when someone is feeling aggravated pitta. And that's a very simple mantra. Do the japa of om with inhalation and shreem with exhalation. Where the word shri means abundance, beauty, uh, lunar qualities, the calming of the mind, the beauty of relationship. Shri is eight kind of powers. So, you know, it's a really, really empowering mantra. And at the same time, perfect for Pitta pacification. You can incorporate it in asanas, in pranayam, in japa, in shavasana, in whichever way you like. And then comes the vata stage. And in the vata stage, in the shatkriyas, let the focus be on practices like trataka, focusing on one object and gazing, because that helps in really calming down the nervous system. Among the asanas, come back once again to the limbs, 
but this time focus on the joints. So the joint release practices, that would be really beneficial. Among the pranayama, because it's the vata stage, even if you're doing anuloma, viloma, make your breath ratio equal, one is to one. And that helps in vata pacification. Among the mantra, the mantra that comes to my mind, which is excellent for vata pacification, is Om with inhalation and Hreem, H-R-E-E-M, Hreem for exhalation. And that is not just excellent for vata pacification in the body, but it's also great for the rajasic state of mind. So these are some of the things that are coming to my mind that I hope that it's not that you have to learn every single pranayama. You have to understand what is the core of that practice and apply it intelligently so that it can support your individual growth. It can support your individual health and not just support it, but uplift it. Mm -hmm. Wow. So... I know that everyone is probably like, okay, I got to go back and listen. So make sure you go back and listen and write all that down. I will do the same because you just dropped so much information and knowledge. And for the listeners, this is priceless knowledge. What she just told us, what Indu just shared with us in the last 10 minutes is years of study. And what I also want to say about that is because of that, don't try and get this perfect. That's not what this is about. This is about trying to understand some of the basic concepts that Induji has you know, shared with us and then digging further and learning more. And I'm going to tell you how you can learn more in a minute with Indu. But I just want to go back to one thing that you talked about, you know, these different stages of life, you know, this idea of, you know, during childhood, we're trying to build right? And so this idea of doing more the physical of the limbs, right? That is the, the focus for growth, for, you know, really for building your body and even your mind and your spirit, all of those things, right? And so there's also, you know, from a physiological standpoint, also there's hormonal control that's going on. And that's, again, the beauty and brilliance of Ayurveda and yoga, because it all actually supports our physiology as well. You know, they didn't know the exact physiology when they were writing all of this down and practicing it, but it's all come to bear true that it supports our physiology. It supports our hormonal release of growth hormone. It helps to regulate cortisol and melatonin because you are doing these active practices, right? During the daytime, again, you're not doing this sort of asana at nighttime, right? So that's another thing that I think everyone needs to keep in mind is that there are times of day that you should be doing these practices. Because if you're doing it at the opposite or not the, I don't want to say the wrong, but a less ideal time of the day, it can be, won't be as beneficial. It can actually work in the opposite direction for you <laughs> and not be supportive of your health, right? So that's really important too. So maybe we could back up and just talk about what time of day is a good time to do the practice during the different stages of life. That's a great question and such an important perspective that you brought up, Avanti. The time matters. You know, the whole menstruation cycle, which is called the Rajahkala, that is considered to be the time where the we are connecting to the rhythm that is of the moon. There is a lunar rhythm, there is circadian rhythm, and all the practices in yoga are nothing but attunement to the rhythms of nature. When we keep that in mind, we understand that Surya Namaskara, even though we can see it as a wonderful workout, we can see it as a great fitness tool, but yoga was not designed for fitness or just for therapy for a specific condition. Yoga was designed for one thing and that was moksha and all the other things were like complementary benefits. But when we understand that, we understand that what modern science is catching up now with the circadian rhythm and the effect of the phases of the moon on the human body and human mind, this knowledge was there thousands of years back and may I say even timeless because there are some texts which, for example, Vedas, there is no time period for them. They are in fact called Apurusha, which means there is no human author to those texts. Uh, so the practices like Surya Namaskara in the Kapha stage. The morning time of the day, even the day has an arc, the morning time of the day is considered to be the Kapha time. That is when the body's health immunity is the strongest. 
that is a time you can introduce something more physically challenging and demanding without depleting. The body has the capacity to withstand that kind of physical challenge. So Surya Namaskar in the morning where it is, it's Surya Namaskar, it's not Chandra Namaskar, you're not polluting the moon. If you do this practice in the evening time, what is happening? You're warming up the body. In the morning, the body, in the evening, the body should cool down. There should be more melatonin production. And in the morning, there should be more cortisol production, which is warming up the body. There should be more connection to your internal clock, to your body clock. And through this, through the exposure of the body to the rays of the sun, what you're doing is you're activating the brain clock, then the internal clock, and then the peripheral clock. That is the entire Surya Namaskar. Surya Namaskar was done gazing at the sun. So the first stimulus of light as it touches the skin, it stimulates the brain clock, which stops the melatonin, increases the cortisol. And then comes the body clock through the internal organ movements. And then the Surya Namaskar goes out to the limbs, which is for the peripheral clock. Now, if we understand that, we'll see that how brilliantly Surya Namaskar standalone practice it's an excellent circadian rhythm balancing practice. That is a standalone. But if we do it in the evening, we are creating the opposite. We don't want the internal organs to wake up. It's absolutely natural and normal for our hormones and enzymes that produces hunger to go to sleep. But with Surya Namaskar, we are awaking them up. Or if we place Surya Namaskar in the middle of the day. Now, middle of the day is the pitta time of the day, the maximum energy is in the internal organs. And if you're firing them more up, you're creating unnecessary heat in the body. You're creating the perfect ground for pitta aggravation, whether it's on your skin, whether it's in your joints, whether it's in your muscle or in your internal organs. So it may not seem like, oh, I feel fine. Sometimes we say that, oh, I feel fine. But what we don't see is 10 years ahead. What we don't see is 20 years ahead. And these practices they're not just for immediate gratification. That is what we need to see. These practices add up. They add up to your mental, physical resilience when one day there is something imbalanced, there is some disharmony in the body. All that credit helps you of those practices. They are not just for immediate gratification. So even though you may not be feeling some pushback from your body right away, you may not be feeling, oh, I'm not awake in the nighttime after Surya Namaskar in the evening. But over a period of time, it accumulates. So anyways, that's just, just an example for if you're choosing Surya Namaskar, practice it in the morning. If you're choosing any of the breathing practices that I suggested you, one is to do, two is to one, one is to one, you can practice it absolutely any time of the day. That is something any time of the day you feel mentally restless, vata, practice one is to one. You feel mentally aggravated. Practice one is to do. You feel mentally dull, practice two is to one. So it's not that every practice has an exclusive time. There are some practices that you can practice any time of the day. The second thing is mudras. There is a mudra where you may not be able to see this, uh, listeners, but I'm joining the middle two finger pads with the thumb pad and keeping the index and little finger stretched out, palms facing up. And with minimal pressure at the point of contact between thumb and the middle two fingers, this is called apana mudra. And apana mudra is to support the apana. What is the function of apana? To orchestrate the generative organs and the elimination organs, excretory organs. So anytime you feel the energy that is stuck, a kind constipation, bloating, gases, or you feel nausea, or you experience that prior to mens mensuration or you feel irregular flow during mensuration or less flow, practice Apana Mudra. This is also something you can practice any time of the day. However, if you are practicing Yoga Nidra, there is a certain time when it can benefit you more. If you're practicing Mantra, there is a certain time it can benefit you more. And what is that time? Dawn and dusk, right upon waking up or right before going to bed. That is the time. This is like the two book ends of the day. And that is the time these practices become like a solid foundation, not just for your body, more for your state of mind, more for emotional balance. You talked about hormones, Avanti. The word for hormones, the word for emotions, the word for taste is all the same in Ayurveda. And that is rasa. And even the menstruation cycle, the menstruation fluid is considered to be the byproduct of the rasa. And rasa is the plasma 
tissue, plasma part of the tissue. So all these things, our emotions, the hormones, the taste, you talked about diet, they are connected. My teacher used to say that satisfy your tongue, satisfy your taste buds and your hormones will be balanced. What we do is we just eat, we chuck the food down, we don't taste it. Because we don't taste it, we are continuously on a replay and repeat. But if we really taste it, each taste is connected to an internal organ. And when that internal organ is dissatisfied, it creates cravings, false cravings, which we meet in a way which is not conducive to the body. So it's important to enjoy the taste. Whenever you're eating food, my dear friends, enjoy the flavors. You, this is directly connected to your hormonal health. Food is not just for the filling up of stomach. It is for the satiation of mind. So it's really important that we start paying attention to these micro habits because that is what controls everything. If there is no one big magical formula, it is this micro habits that makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think that so many of the points you made are so important. And, you know, I want to go back to one thing you said about Surya Namaskar and doing that in the morning time. That was designed as a morning practice because of your exposure to the sun, which then regulates your hormones, right? We've talked about this on the podcast before that the sun hitting your retina will then cause a signal that causes a cascade to turn off melatonin and to turn on cortisol. And that regulates everything in your circadian clock, which controls everything in your body. That's also why morning sunlight viewing is so important. However you do it, if you just get outside and go for a walk. So even though, you know, in the other stages of life, you may not be doing Surya Namaskar as a daily practice because it may not be as supportive to your health during those times you can still get outside and have this morning sunlight viewing in a different way. You can go for a walk during the, the time of your life. That can be very, very pitta pacifying because you're out in nature, you're getting fresh prana, you're doing something relaxing, you're connecting with nature, you're connecting to, to something larger than yourself, and you're also getting morning sunlight right? In the vata time of, of life, you can go for a walk. That is very good for stimulus of the joints, for functional movement. You don't have to go at a, at a brisk pace. You can go at a leisurely pace, but you're moving and you're getting that morning sunlight viewing. So I just wanted to give an example of what you're saying that, you know, there are there are suggestions of things that are better for you, that are supportive of your health at different times of your life, but there are ways you can do these things that are truly supportive, even if it's not exactly the same thing. So this idea of Surya Namaskar during the Kapha time of year of life can be then translated into a walk during maybe a little more brisk walk during the Pitta time of life into another walk during the Vata period of life. And all three can support you and your hormones because of the way that you're doing the activity. So just an example that I think is really important to think about also. Absolutely. Absolutely. And may I one more thing that that's really, really, uh, I feel it's an important piece that sometimes is missing with the practice of asanas. Whether you're practicing them during vata, pitta, or kapha stage of life, the application of oil, abhyanga, that was considered to be an important preparatory step before practicing yoga. Because that helps in when you apply oil on the body, it calms down the vata. And then you move your body so it does not aggravate the vata dosha. Otherwise, movement itself can aggravate the vata dosha. So, especially during the vata stage of life, apply oil on your body, on your arms, not on your foot sole. We don't want you to slip. But on your body and then do the practice, you will see that the body feels a completely different level of warmth and relaxation just by adding that tiny step. I mean, there are so many uh, unique practices, Avanti, specific mudra at different stages, whether it is perimenopausal stage or many menopausal stage or menstruation stage or menarche stage. I mean, we can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. But I think with all of this, what I'm trying to communicate, hopefully, is the understanding of the practice matters in context to your body. 
not just the understanding of the practice, the understanding of the practice in context to your body. Because that equation, in that equation, there are two. It takes two to communicate. One is the practice, one is you. And what you are going through, what your individual symptoms are, what your individual uh, limitations are, challenges are, they matter. And when you start listening to your body, you may not have to read about every single asana. Just start listening to your body. That during your, let's say during the menstruation, if you have the kind of, because menstruation is one single head, even in that, some, some may experience vata kind of challenges. For example, some may experience bloating, constipation, cramping, uh, spotting. These are all vata kind of challenges versus pitta kind of challenges is too much flow, profuse sweating, mental irritability, diarrheal stools, kapha kind of st menstruation challenges where there is prolonged menstruation cycle. There is nausea, there is heaviness, there is sleepiness. There is, there is sometimes even weight gain during menstruation cycle. There is water retention. So even during menstruation, there is individual challenges. And you may not need to read all these symptoms. You know, just connect to your body. And when you put them in these categories, vata, pitta, katha, you can provide a more appropriate, suitable, empowering, healing, supporting practice. Yes. And I think what you said is so important because it always comes back to awareness. For me, Ayurveda is awareness. It's consciously living, living consciously, understanding what's going on with you in all of your different bodies, your physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, right? And then applying these ideas of, of really the golden principle of Ayurveda, like increases like and opposites reduce. And that takes some learning. That does take some learning of what practices support and aggravate the different doshas. That is definitely something that is learned. And so that kind of brings me to sort of the last point, which because I know we're coming up on time here, is that, you know, if this was of interest to all of you who are listening, Indu has a beautiful program that is starting very soon. <laughs> which I would love for you to tell the listeners about. We will have everything linked in the show notes because I think that this is something that if there are women listening to this podcast and you have a yearning to learn more, I can think of no better way to learn than to learn from Indu. So could you tell us about the program that you're actually going to be running very soon? Thank you so much, Avanti. Um, yeah, it's a three-class series that's coming up that's called Yoga and Ayurveda for for women and for for menopause. So, so the focus here is menopause, yoga and Ayurveda for, for menopause. But we will be talking about menstruation. We'll be talking about pre-menopause. We'll be talking about all these things in context with how to choose practices, how to choose diet, how to choose micro habits that Ayurveda suggests as a part of your morning and evening routine that can make a remarkable difference. Uh, because according to Ayurveda, the body is not supposed to go through that pain, that cramping, that discomfort. Uh, that is because the doshas are imbalanced. So how to balance those doshas will be the focus. And how does it apply to these life situations and conditions? So the program starts on January 10th. And it is a three-hour class. And it will be held uh, via, it will be held via Zoom, live stream. But there will also be a replay. And let's say... Uh, 10th January has passed and you're listening to the podcast episode later, you can still join the program. As long as it's in the month of January, it's a three-class series. You're listening, then you want to join, just send an email and you can register for it and you can learn through the replay. So that is one. But if you want to learn especially about Ayurveda, there is a program that will start in August. It's called Essential Ayurveda for Yoga Practitioners. It's a 50-hour detailed program. But only the, the essential, non-negotiable Ayurveda as it applies for yoga practitioners. So keep an eye on the website uh, and in the upcoming programs, and hopefully that will be helpful. And for now, just remember three basic things. Focus on the subtle practice. Increase your knowledge about the subtle practices. And know that they are so, so, so powerful you have explored asanas. Now explore a little bit of the subtlety of the body because that is what orchestrates everything. 
Yes, absolutely. And all of these programs will be linked in the show notes. In addition, I want to tell all of you that Inlu has written beautiful, beautiful books. They'll also be linked in the show notes that are amazing resources with so many practices, so many tips, so much knowledge. I mean, there's beautiful pictures and illustrations and explanations. And so if you enjoy the way that Indu teaches, take a live program with her for sure. I've been in her classes before. They are unbelievably amazing. But also you can learn from her books and from the other things that are on her website. There's so many things that Indu shares. So make sure that you also connect with her on Instagram. She's always dropping so many beautiful pieces of wisdom and great tips and ideas for you there. I learned so much from there. So I can't say enough about how much I love learning from you. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your knowledge. I know that this has been just such an amazing episode. I have to go back and listen and scribble notes. I was trying to write things down and I gave up. So I'll go back and listen as well. I hope that all of you will too. But Indu, thank you so much for doing this with me today. Thank you so much, Avanti, and thank you so much to you, the listener. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.